0: It's a challenge because what we've been doing is, is basically giving stores credit for all of the e-commerce sales historically that have some kind of an omni-channel component but what we may need to be doing is is also the opposite, which is attributing more of the online traffic to you know significant part of marketing expenses that generate value to physical stores. So I think that we just need to rethink about how we look at ROI. Really.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Full Cart, a podcast by Riskified. I'm your host Alan Livney, and it is officially the holiday season. We are. What, just over a week away from Black Friday? So today we're going to have a special conversation with our guest Sucharita Kodali. She's a VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester Search uh, and a retail expert. And beyond that, I'm going to let her introduce herself. Sucharita is going to walk us through navigating the supply chain crisis, balancing in-store and online channels, which payment methods consumers really care about, and more. For a deeper dive into our holiday season insights, check out our 2021 holiday report. You can download a complimentary copy by following the link in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. All right. So, Sucharita, first of all, thank you for joining us today. We're very, very happy to have you here and have your expertise with us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you start off by introducing yourself for our, our audience?
0: Yeah, sure. So my name is Sucharita Kadali. I'm a retail analyst at a technology research company called Forrester, which is headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I focus very specifically on the retail industry and solutions that address the retail industry. So that means consumer-facing retailers, brand manufacturers that sell into retailers, and how consumers research and shop for their products, both online and offline.
1: So I want to start off with maybe situating ourselves with relation to, you know, we've got a holiday season coming up that's maybe a little bit more predictable now that it's closer in the near future. And and we're poised again to see the biggest holiday season yet. It's kind of like a continuing trend of growth over the past few years.
0: For e-commerce, I don't know if it'll be the biggest year overall for retail, but certainly for e-commerce.
1: Yeah, and that's an important distinction. So I want to ask about consumers, which shopping trends you've seen solidify over the past year that we can expect to see throughout the holiday season?
0: The single biggest ones are probably some of the changes from a fulfillment standpoint. So we started to see a lot of things like curbside pickup, in-store pickup, research online, understand what's in a physical store before you actually go to the store. So that was a big change through the pandemic that I expect will last long after the pandemic. The big takeaway is that you have reduced dwell time in a store when you do that. And that is just a change because one of the key metrics that retailers hold themselves accountable to is dwell time. So We probably need to get rid of that metric and maybe focus more on sales, conversion rates, and have a better handle on attribution models and recognize that sales don't happen in single channels. They happen because consumers have touched multiple touch points and that should impact your investment decisions. That impacts how you look at the benefits of a particular channel. It's a challenge because what we've been doing as a workaround is is basically giving stores credit for all of the e-commerce sales historically that have, you know, some kind of an omni-channel component. But what we may need to be doing is, is also the opposite, which is, you know, kind of attributing more of the online traffic to, you know, significant part of marketing expenses that generate value to physical stores. So I think that we just need to rethink about how we look at ROI, really.
1: And with this increased interest in in-store and curbside pickup, how do you expect the dynamic between in-store and online shopping to play out?
0: Well, anytime you have curbside, you have less traffic in outside a physical store, right? So what you've basically done is you've introduced a cost to the physical store that didn't exist before. On the other hand, what you are doing is you're preserving a sale that may have gone somewhere else, like to another merchant, and you are presumably also managing that transaction in a slightly more efficient way versus the alternative channel, which would be shipping it in maybe a cumbersome box from a more remote distribution center. And when you look at it from that standpoint, you know, more of the world is shifting online and e-commerce has higher variable costs than traditional retail are there ways that you can manage those lower margins? And uh, are there ways that you can still preserve the sale and have a win in this new world? And I think that um, that's what you just have to do is you just have to frame it from that standpoint. When you introduce curbside in a vacuum, it may not make a ton of sense, but When you introduce curbside in a world where the other option is an even more expensive fulfillment vehicle, curbside looks really, really good. And I think that more merchants are recognizing that. I think that like 20 years ago, it was sort of like curbside's really optional. It's, you know, it's just an extra added expense that doesn't make sense. But I think now there's more of a recognition that e-commerce is a cost of doing business. You know, e-commerce fulfillment is a cost of doing business. Um, especially when one of the fastest growing retailers is, is Amazon. So in that world, how do you make the most out of this hyper competitive dynamic, you know, and a lot of it comes down to taking advantage of your stores, looking at different ways of assessing profitability and being competitive, not with, you know, the retailer that has the lowest cost of operation, but with a retailer that actually has a very high cost of operation, and that that is Amazon.
1: You mentioned uh, earlier the supply chain issue, so I want to delve into that topic. It's obviously a very big issue for pretty much all merchants right now, an issue that customers are acutely aware of. We've seen research mm-hmm. indicating everything from customers that are looking to spread out their holiday season shopping and have already started it actually, to an expected increase in spend on digital gift cards just because, That's one thing that's reliable when physical products are not. So how are merchants dealing with this challenge?
0: Well, I haven't seen any really sophisticated approaches to this. This is one of those things where organizational silos really work against you because the marketing people care about marketing and how many clicks, you you know, and what their average CPM is or whatever. And there's not a ton of synchronization with the supply chain team and what's going to be in stock or what's not going to be in stock. And then you have a merchandising team that is just trying to manage to its own functions. And then you have an IT team that is managing to its functions. And hopefully every company has at least one person, if not several people that are kind of managing the whole picture and looking at what are we doing? What should we be doing? You know, do we need to have a Black Friday sale this year if we don't have enough merchandise to support it? Should we just really be leaning into higher margins this year and just give up on increased revenue or greater units sold? How much are we even In stock or out of stock and what's even coming on what container ship and when is it scheduled to arrive? And what impact will that have on what we're able to present in the next couple of months? I see more panic from the media than I do from the people who should be the most panicked. And, um, I think a lot of them are probably somewhat insulated from the reality or they may be told things that they want to hear and, um, What is going to happen is that they're just not going to have the product at the end of the day. And when there's not product, it's either, you know, orders get canceled or backordered. And then people are left, freeing their hands, wondering, well, whose fault was that? When it should have been everybody's, everybody's fault. But nobody's held accountable to that metric of ultimately consumer satisfaction or, you know, how many canceled orders there were. I mean, the only thing that like a marketer is held accountable to is... Were you able to drive people through checkout? And if that's all you're held accountable to, you're not going to care what inventory is available or in stock. I I know very, very few marketers that work closely with supply chain even during Q4. So it'll it's going to be interesting to see how how this shakes out because there are a lot of things you should be doing, and the main things you should be doing is really, really thinking hard about whether or not you need to discount that much in November. And if you do plan to have a sale, what are you going to mark down? Because you should be marking down what you have too much of, not the things that, you know, are going to sell out. And that's something that I know happens over and over again, because I work closely with retailers. You see it as a shopper. You know, some of the best sellers, the things that are most desirable are typically available for sale on Black Friday. But, you know, if this year we have an inventory shortage, why would you plan to work things down that early in the season? And the other option could be, you know, maybe you're planning for a January sale or a February sale because it's going to take that long for the merchandise to get here. Which actually isn't a bad idea because as it is, consumers are very savvy shoppers and like 10% of what's considered holiday, you know, in a normal year happens after um, Christmas in regions like the United States and Europe. And that's because people know that there are going to be a tremendous number of markdowns that will happen. And they're happy to just take what's available and what's left at that point in time. And that situation could just get even more pronounced this year because you're basically you're getting stuff late. It's not going to be there in time for the holidays and it's excess inventory. What are you going to do with it at that point? So maybe a big blowout January or February sale should be the marketing strategy for, for a lot of these companies.
1: Yeah, I mean, the risk of disappointing customers, I guess, with these delays, it it always exists, but especially around the holiday season with people getting, getting gifts and wanting to get them in time to give them on the holidays, then the risk is even greater. So it sounds like you're advocating for a more holistic overview of what a merchant's actually able to deliver versus just trying to maximize sales um, in terms of volume.
0: Right, right. And to really, really have a good understanding of what are you going to have available? And then also, realistically, what are delivery times, you know, and there are a number of factors. There are all the upstream supply chain factors, but nobody's talking about the carrier delays.
1: The last mile.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: We've seen how strongly the e-commerce industry has been impacted with relation to the pandemic. More people than ever are shopping online. By now, it feels like we're living in a new digital reality, one that's perhaps more volatile and less predictable. Would you say that an investment in digital infrastructure and in organizational restructuring is the right choice for such a precarious time?
0: Well, I don't see how you can avoid it. If more sales are shifting into this channel, how can you not choose this direction? So yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of is inevitable, but I feel like that's not where the debate is. Like nobody is that naive now. Where they are naive is in believing everything with respect to the newest bright shiny object. That's where I see the biggest issue. So the kinds of questions that I get are, should I put the ability to pay with Bitcoin on my checkout page to which my answer is, no, it's not necessary, and <laughs> in fact, unadvisable. But you know, those are the kinds of questions that I think are the bigger questions that you know people do need to step back and try to separate the wheat from the chaff of what's a smart digital investment versus what's nonsense. That's a total time waster, and that's where they need to have more guidance and what to to do and not do because. There are so many bright, shiny objects out there, and you know you really, really have to approach it skeptically and distinguish between what's going to truly help my business versus what is just a snake oil salesman that is trying to get me to, to invest in something that helps them, but not me.
1: Right. So you were just talking about payments and Bitcoin and bright, shiny new objects, and I want to ask. I mean, U.S. consumers are uh, still primarily using uh, credit cards, Mm -hmm. but we're seeing, you know, gradual rising interest in alternative payment methods, e-wallets, PayPal, direct payments. And obviously, you know, the past few months, nobody could ignore the rise of buy now, pay later. Is it a trend? Is it a shiny new object? Or can we expect the diversity of preferred payment methods to, to stay with us?
0: So if we just take something like buy now, pay later, it has grown a lot in the United States in the last few months, but it's still a minority of transactions. So that's important to remember is that it's not like, oh, this is supplanted and taken over like 50% of transactions. By the way, you know, buy now, pay later, is it's deferred billing. And we have known about deferred billing. We've used deferred billing as a promotional tool for years. You know, for decades, I would say it's one of the easiest ways to get people to buy. And typically it's been for higher ticket transactions. It's been cars and furniture. What's new is that you can buy fast fashion with deferred billing now. That's what's different. You know, and I mean, it's it's rational behavior. I mean, anybody in ticket economics knows that dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. Right. So you know, you'd rather defer a payment wherever possible. And the beautiful thing is that retailers are happy to do this because the buy now, pay later provider is, for the most part, from my understanding, taking a lot of the risk. Now, it is also my understanding that the fees are a little bit higher. So I think retailers are waiting for a cycle, like at least, you know, 12, 18, 24 months to see are these higher fees worth it to me. Am I actually retaining these shoppers? Are they purchasing more long term? Or am I just having to pay like six percent on something that's a $10 transaction where I never see the shopper again? But you're not you don't know that for like a couple of years. You have to sit and wait to see if that shopper actually transacts and if all marketing messaging actually works. So I think that things like buy now pay later sort of, you know, it's like the Godfather, you know, it's an offer that no customer can refuse. So They seem very successful now. The question is, are they going to be seen as successful in 24 months when CFOs actually step back and say this was good or not? And if there is no incremental customer acquisition that comes from buy now, pay later, people are probably going to pull it out. What I will tell you is that I've done a lot of research in 15 years, worked with Early iterations of companies like Bill Me Later and kind of really, really dug into what merchants and consumers would say about their usage. And there's some incrementality, absolutely. And it varies from merchant to merchant. It varies based on what is the average ticket normally. And there's absolutely some cannibalism too, where people who would have paid with a cheaper form of payment for you, the merchant, are now switching to something that's more expensive for the merchant, you know, and that has to be balanced with ultimately what is the incrementality. So so merchants need to be probably smarter than they are about how they implement these things, because it's not like, oh, this is just some magic silver bullet that drives everybody's revenues, you know, to great growth overnight.
1: Yeah, and I guess we we just don't know yet. I mean, you need that time to be able to analyze that kind of data. Right. For the last few minutes that we have here, Sutrida, I want to ask you, what are you curious about for 2022?
0: Um... For me, you know, something that we didn't talk about, I spent a lot of time thinking about is regulation in a regulatory framework for for large tech companies. And it's, it's a big existential issue. And there are all sorts of characters involved in that discussion. There's, you know, different legislative bodies. There are regulatory agencies in North America and overseas, um, all of whom are Suggesting changes, some of them are enforcing rules that have been on the books for years but have been overlooked. Um, So I'm I'm curious to see what actually changes. And and you know, change when you're talking about the government is is usually glacially slow. So this may be more than a 2022 horizon. I mean, this is this something that I think we're going to continue talking about for like 10 years. But I'm most curious. And I think that those are going to be the biggest shifts that actually bring the balance of power back to smaller companies um, is, is a shift in the regulatory frameworks that involve everything, certainly from the distribution of content online, but also what we're allowed to sell, what are the terms of trade, how you can rely on things like ratings and reviews or not. So I think that there are going to be some massive changes that, like I said, will bring the balance of power back to smaller companies. That's not to say that it's going to be substantially different from a consumer point of view. But I think what you'll start to see is just subtle shifts where, you know, I don't need to purchase as much on marketplaces or it doesn't look like the marketplace has as much to buy, you where know, there's not as much that they're selling or the prices are not as competitive. And you'll just start to see a gradual shift to, oh, I can find this for a cheaper price and it looks like a better deal at these three websites. Instead, it will be things like how brands choose to distribute, how well they're able to monitor their products, what things Brands are allowed to say about their products, you know, kind of certain readings and reviews basically being pulled from websites altogether, you know. So those are some big changes that I I think will happen in you know kind of the next few years.
1: Yeah, and I mean, when you spoke about the shift in the power dynamic, I was also thinking of you know more power in the hands of the consumers themselves, being less entrenched in these big social Mm -hmm. networks and having more ability to choose and and diversify.
0: I hope so. I really hope so. Nobody knows how any of this, it's just, it's all so conceptual and, and it's, you still need somebody. It's not going to be the government. You need somebody to build the technology that allows you to port your data from one solution to another. And I don't know who those players will ultimately be. It's not, you know, we've been talking about like digital lockers and digital twins for years. It's not like I'm building my own digital twin and, you know, I mean who's who's doing it for me? Is it Microsoft? Is it like, you know, is it Google? Because if they're just doing it, then don't they still have all the data that, you know, I, so, so I think that there's a lot that needs to still be worked out, but I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that conceptually there's some big changes coming in actuality, how they actually shake out, I think still remains to be seen and we'll, we'll see, you know, we will, we'll see. I think that, um, A lot of what's happened in the last few years has just been the total wild west where there are just no laws. And, you know, a lot of things that we take for granted are because there are laws that are put in place and there's enforcement of laws. You know, we're headed toward a world where we are going to have enforcement of technology laws, new laws, and then there's going to be enforcement around those laws. They probably should have been put in place years ago, but, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's like. It wouldn't have existed if it were not for 9-11. So it's a lot of the same with like internet laws is that, you know, it took us things like Cambridge Analytica to realize we needed things to be different. They're still not in place, but they will be.
1: Fascinating. And I got to say, that's not something that, you know, in that kind of framework that I would personally been thinking about. So thanks for uh, raising that issue. Sutrina. we're at time. Sure. Thank you very, very much for an enlightening conversation. It was great talking to you.
0: Yeah, thank you, alone. It was nice to talk to you, too, anytime.
1: That's a wrap for today. Thanks again to Sucharita for an illuminating conversation. I hope you learned a lot from it. I'm sure I did. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want more insights where that came from, don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to download our holiday report. And to be the first to know about new episodes of The Full Cart, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. From all of us at Riskified, happy holidays.